0: It was her most cherished jewel. I just get sort of um, get rather excited by the fact that I'm on the very spot. Joan of Navarre is probably one of our least known Queens of England, full stop. I love this fact they sort of stopped for lunch halfway through the rebellion.
1: It's the only one of Fabergé's eggs
0: that looks like an egg. Hello and welcome to History Gems where in this week's episode, we're going to be talking about a jewel with a truly tumultuous history, the Black Prince's Ruby. It gives me great pleasure to introduce today's guest, Dr. Michael Jones. The Black
1: Prince's Ruby is five centimetres by five centimetres. That's more than two inches. Yeah. Uh, It's it's largely uncut. Uh, And the idea of mounting this on a uh, a circlet crown welded to a helmet is pretty ludicrous. The finesse was some of the most beautiful gems, including the black Prince's ruby, were prized out of the crown and hidden in a biscuit tin.
0: Michael is a leading military historian who specializes in battle psychology and French history. He's the author of many books, including The Outstanding The King's Mother, A Biography of Margaret Beauford, which was shortlisted for the Whitfield Prize. I have to say that Michael was a huge inspiration for me when I was writing my biography of Margaret Beauford, Uncrowned Queen. His other books cover topics including Agincourt and Bosworth, which are both going to be crucial for today's episode, but also books about Stalingrad and the Second World War. His most recent book, The Black Prince, was published to wide acclaim and it's certainly going to be coming in useful for today's episode. And welcome to History Gems. It's such a pleasure to be able to talk to you today. We're going to be talking about the Black Prince's ruby today, which I feel is quite apt, seeing as you've conveniently written a biography of the Black Prince and its history covers lots of your specialisms. Um, but I'm perhaps conscious that maybe not everyone would be familiar with the Black Prince. So I think maybe that's a good place to start, is perhaps you can just tell us a bit about the Black Prince and who he was.
1: The Black Prince is the oldest son of King Edward III. And um, he was never called the Black Prince in his lifetime. He was known as Edward of Woodstock after the royal palace where he was born. And he was an incredible warrior and a model really of chivalry and he tragically became ill and died uh, a year before his father so he was a heroic prince who who never became king but during his lifetime he won some stupendous victories one of which is very relevant to our our story yeah and also he, he did live a magnificent lifestyle, so he loved precious stones and gems. Mm-hmm. So he'd be very much um, infused by this topic and indeed the, the, the general theme of the podcast. He, he dressed to impress, so he didn't just acquire wealth to sort of lock it up or hoard it, but it was very much on show. <clears throat> In fact, on one military campaign, when, when a number of his soldiers <laughs> made rather, uh, I think, sarcastic comments about his outfits because they were pretty astonishing. He he joined in the joke and, and knighted his tailor, who was also responsible for sewing on the jewels, in front of the whole army, which kind of turned the situation around. Wow. So he, he embodied a magnificent lifestyle. And in the 1360s, uh, which is the decade where our, our story really gets going, yeah. he, was, he was fighting in what's known as the Hundred Years' War. So mm-hmm. this is the war between England and France that was started by his dad, Edward III, okay. probably in 1338. And together, the two of them, um, father and son, won this great victory at Crecy against the French in, mm. in 1346. And ten years later, the prince won a, a huge victory of his own at Poitiers, where he actually captured the French king, Jean II. And so this was really, this made, this made his reputation. Mm. <clears throat> and it allowed the English to broker a very advantageous peace deal. And under the terms of this peace deal, England... And I say England here because Scotland was an independent country, uh, and so England is really shorthand for England and Wales. Okay. But England was able, for a very brief period of time, to hold aquitaine that's southwest France, mm-hmm. Gascony, and, and a bit more, in full sovereignty. <clears throat> and this background is very important because... The prince, the black prince, rules over Aquitaine in the 1360s with his very beautiful wife, Joan of Kant, who loved precious stones just as much as he did. So together yeah. they were a huge fashion item.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, their, their court was incredibly splendid. The prince always overspent. Um, but at the same time, he captivated people by the magnificence of his court. So when we get to the time of our story, we have basically the oldest son uh, of Edward III, a heroic warrior, a magnificent figure, who's holding court in the southwest of France and entrancing everybody. So he's absolutely at the pinnacle.
0: Fascinating stuff. And would you say, with his court, you talked about the magnificence of his court, and I'm just interested to know, was it, on a part of that of his father, or did it supersede it, do you think?
1: Well, well this is a very interesting question, because uh, my own view that, uh, that I developed in my biography is that, that, that father-son relationships were becoming rather strained in the 1360s, and one reason okay. was that uh, the Black Prince, and, and I'll call him that, yeah, because it's a title of convenience. It's how he's known. He was really eclipsing his father, um, and in some respects, I mean, in, in terms of expenditure, uh, Edward III was, you know, rebuilding. He had great projects celebrating the majesty of kingship in the 1360s. So he he certainly wasn't slacking in that regard. <laughs> but because um the Black Prince was so dynamic so active i I think in some respects the attention had shifted for him and th- there was a kind of bittersweet quality to that because later on in the late 1360s there's clear evidence that father and son are falling out um, very very sadly
0: oh that's such a shame mm. um so thinking about the Black Prince. Can you just tell us a bit about how he became known as the Black Prince?
1: Well, the the first record of him being called the Black Prince is only found in the 1540s. Oh, right. So so in in the Tudor period. uh, And the very first reference is quite obscure. It's in the notes of a a- antiquarian um, John Leyland, who, who travelled round uh, Britain, sort of jotting down things, um, and when he visited the Black Prince's tomb, which I, I recommend to everyone, it's a, a wonderful tomb in Canterbury Cathedral,
2: mm.
1: he he described um, the prince as the Black Prince. Now. now The first reference in Prince occurs in Prince, sorry, occurs in about 1572 in the Chronicle of Richard Grafton. And this, this sounds like rather tiny detail, but it's actually very significant because Grafton's Chronicle was a source used by Shakespeare. And it's Shakespeare who, um, where else but in his play Henry V, uh, Popularized the term the Black Prince because the poor Valois King Charles VI is kind of bemoaning, um, you know, fate and fortune, and mm-hmm. refers back to Edward, Prince of Wales, that you know, Black Prince of legends, and and by if Shakespeare says it, it sticks. so, so Shakespeare ensures that, that Edward of Woodstock is always <laughs> going to be called the Black Prince. Now. Why that um, much later nickname appeared is is kind of open house for speculation, um, and and one theory which, which I, I don't buy into is that it was the color of his armor. Okay. Yeah.
2: Um,
1: another one is it was black deeds in France. Nineteenth-century um, French historians would like that uh, interpretation, but. In, in the Middle Ages, the, the French, despite the fact that he was creating havoc across their land and defeating them in battle, when, when the Black Prince died, they held a solemn memorial mass for him. Because, and one Valois chronicle said, you might find this very strange, because of course he was our mortal enemy, but he represented something much higher than that. He embodied the values of knighthood that we all admire. And for that reason, and it was absolutely unprecedented and didn't happen before or since in the Hundred Years' War, mm. there was a day of solemn mourning. And, and uh, the French king, Charles V, held a requiem mass uh, on behalf of the Black Prince in, in um, Paris, in Saint-Chapelle,
2: really? which is an
1: absolutely extraordinary tribute. So mm. I, I need to emphasize that in the 14th century, the French were not buying into this black deeds thing at all ah. my, my own theory for what it's worth is yeah. that going back to the first reference to the black prince that um john leyland has visited the tomb <clears throat> and one thing that's very striking in, in the tomb is the uh black backdrop to the prince's badges of peace and so um oh, the okay. armorial devices have this very striking black background and that my own view is just it can only be a hypothesis is mm. it was a pilgrim nickname for the tomb and and i say um pilgrim because mm. the black prince's son and we'll get on to him richard the Second. Deviated from his father's will in one respect. His father wanted to be buried in the crypt, but um, Richard II had the tomb made around 1385 as close as possible to the shrine of Thomas Becket. In other words, um, it, as as a tribute, really, to the prince, his son Richard II put dad and dad's tomb right on the biggest pilgrimage route in Europe, so you couldn't miss him.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. Gosh, that's fascinating. And I had no idea that the name, the Black Prince, wasn't a contemporary name either. So that's really interesting to hear your hypothesis on, on how it came about. And actually, it makes a lot of sense, I think, as well. So moving on to this stone, which is known as the Black Prince's ruby, and it's given to the Black Prince in 1367, I think. So, do we know? Do we know anything of its history before this? Do we know where it came from?
1: Yes, well, it has a very interesting history, and I guess this is the point. Spoiler alert: to say that <laughs> I, actually, it, it's it's commonly called cool, the Black Prince's Ruby, and that's how a bit like the black prince uh, <laughs> but actually it's not a ruby so we have the black prince who was never called the black prince in his lifetime uh, and we have the black prince's ruby that's actually not a ruby but a spinel uh, and the spinel was often confused with a ruby Spinnels are different uh, in terms of their chemical makeup uh, and also in their crystalline structure so a spinel can be ruby red and and very attractive too, and so it often gets confused with rubies. Or it can be blue and it gets confused with sapphires. But a spinel is a compound, uh, a a little bit of the technical stuff, it's a compound of magnesium, iron and Mm -hmm. chromium, whereas a a ruby is from um, the mineral, a chromium, uh, the texture is different, the structure is different. It's a totally different piece. Mm. And um, an important bridge in this discussion, because in the Middle Ages, people were just looking at the appearance. They weren't analyzing the chemical structure <laughs> of the gem. But, no. but uh, it's, uh, the, often there is a reference um, in inventories. And I think one of the themes, really, of, of our chat's is going to be... Uh, trying, if possible, to separate out some of the wilder parts of tradition around this um, remarkable um, precious stone. Absolutely. Uh, and so, as you know very well, Nicola, it's, you know, it's all about inventories and, yes. and contemporary descriptions of jewels. Now, sometimes you get a, a description that says a ballast ruby, yep. B-A-L-A-S-T, and, and that comes from, um, the Arabic, actually, um, Balakash, which is the area where the spinel is mined. It's, it's in Afghanistan, oh, it's a, in cool. the area of northern India and Afghanistan. Yeah. So a, a, a ballast ruby is actually referring to the stone, the spinel. <laughs> Although they hadn't analyzed the chemical makeup, they're using a term that designates the place where these precious stones come from. And that's important because as we track the story of, quote unquote, the Black Prince's ruby in the inventories, and certainly from the time of Henry VIII, we we get references to a great ballast ruby. uh, And this is a a very strong pointer that they're talking about the Black Prince's ruby, which is actually a spinel. Something I'd add here, because it's going to collide with some of the myths which we'll be talking about, is that that a spinel is softer. It hasn't got the strength and durability of the ruby, which means that it would be much more likely to get shattered. And I say that because of what's coming shortly. (laughs) Intriguing. So it's, its root to the Black Prince is that In the 14th century, we're now going to go to Spain, but our our modern concept of Spain, actually in the 14th century, there was no unified Spain. There was a kingdom of Portugal. But what we now know as Spain was divided into four kingdoms. Um, In the north was the kingdom of Navarre. And then we had Castile and Aragon. And then finally at the bottom, Granada, which was still a Muslim kingdom. And we believe that this wonderful stone, Black Prince's Ruby, originated from um, Muslim Granada and it then migrated from Muslim Granada to Castile because uh, the ruler of Castile in the 1360s, um, Pedro, who has the most wonderful an apt name of Pedro the Cruel, Yeah. Uh, Pedro the Cruel uh, has very close relationship, a close alliance with um, Muslim Granada. Uh, there's a lot of trade. Uh, he has a military alliance. In fact, when he gets chucked off the throne, and this is the reason he shows up at the Black Prince's court in 1366-7, the, the last force that stays loyal to him is the force of Muslim cavalry. <clears throat> so there's a lot of trade. He's, he's styling his buildings on Muslim buildings, and it's very, very likely that he acquired this precious stone from Muslim Granada in the 1360s. And then... Um, the last piece of this jigsaw is that that Castile, so the Kingdom of Castile, part of modern Spain, was tied to England by a military alliance, political and military alliance, that had been signed in 1362. So signed between Pedro and Edward III, the Black Prince's father. But mm-hmm. the Black Prince was quite closely involved in it. And in this alliance, if Castile was threatened, um, England promised to give uh, Castile military aid. Now, I I think the intention was to support Pedro while he was still on the throne, but actually he was booted off the throne by his half-brother, Enrique, and uh, turned up at the Black Prince's court in Bordeaux in 1366 Uh, without any money, he'd lost his treasure train en route, uh, without any major political or military support, but he did have his jewels. And and we know this because in the Black Prince's own accounts, his financial records, Mm. it records the fact because the Black Prince is going to be left substantially out of pocket by... Um, supporting uh, Pedro the cruel militarily, but mm. the one thing he does get is um, Pedro's jewels, I, and I think Pedro was kind of—I <laughs> mean—probably stuffed them in his pockets. But, <laughs> but <clears throat> it, this is very interesting because the um, the spinel, known as the Black Prince's ruby, yeah. is a very beautiful stone. Uh, when one sees it. Uh, we'll come on to this. It's in the imperial state crown now, and one can see it in the Tower of London. But there's a, a drill hole right at the top, which is, which is actually covered by a real ruby, a very, very small ruby. But this suggests that it was, um, I, I would say originally used as a pendant. So oh, really? Oui. I, I imagine that oh. Pedro showed up. trying to impress the magnificent Black Prince with this stunning jewel. And uh, although most of Pedro's jewels were sold because the Black Prince was so strapped for cash, it's quite possible that because this stone was so striking, was so beautiful, it had a most beautiful colour and shape, and it was very large, the Black Prince thought, I'll keep that. So... uh, Pedro, this is the route to the Black Prince. Pedro of Castile shows up at the prince's court in Aquitaine, at Bordeaux, saying, "Please help me, mate. Remember the treaty. I've got to get back on the throne. Uh, of course, once I get back on the throne, you know, all the money I have will be yours. But in the meantime, very unfortunate, I got separated from my treasure train. But I do have some rather nice jewels, and I think." that the uh, Black Prince's ruby was the creme de la creme and, mm. and the prince again the thing about the Black Prince is he likes showing these things so I think the the idea if if we run with this theory of, of a very beautiful pendant uh, would have appealed to him.
0: That's absolutely fascinating and like you said if he was obviously as as keen on show as as what you've been telling us then it would make sense that it would be a piece that he would really want to show off
1: yes initially because um the interesting thing is that there are two very strong associations with this precious stone and the one is a military one because when the black prince gathers an army at considerable expense and most of his money he does not get back from pedro so this expedition in the longer term bankrupts um the the principality of accutane uh, bankrupts the prince personally and and leads to a lot of misfortune however he crosses the pyrenees and wins this stupendous victory in april um 1367, at Machiera, and that puts Pedro back on the throne. Ah. So when he wins this battle, I mean, the propaganda machine goes into overdrive, and everyone in Europe is saying, well, that battle and the prince are just incredible. So the the ruby, if if we call it the ruby, um, has this association with martial valor, But it also has this association with ill fortune because everything then goes wrong. The army contracts dysentery; it has to go back home. Um, Aquitaine is bankrupt. The prince has to levy a tax; it's very unpopular. Uh, Some Gascon lords appeal to the Valois king Charles V, the same king who held that requiem mass for help. And by 1369, the war started again, and to cap it all. You know, the, the Black Prince's greatest asset is his military skill. He succumbs to a terrible illness that leaves him bedridden a lot of the time, so he can't actually get up and fight. Uh, and his last campaign at, at Limoges, he, he's actually carried on a stretcher. <gasps> and, and my view is that the Black Prince, who, who was very pious, um, very devout, uh came to believe that all this misfortune was the judgment of God because Pedro did live up to his nickname of the cruel. He was suspected of murdering his wife. Uh, he murdered another half-brother in particularly atrocious fashion. He, he lured him to a banquet, chased him round the palace, stabbed him to death in the dining room, and then carried yeah. on eating. Personally?
2: He did and,
1: that personally, oh my God! And, and his last action, just before arriving at Bordeaux, so he did show up with the ruby,
2: yeah,
1: you know, the, the spinel. But the Black Prince, if, if we look at the Black Prince's registers, he's sending off all his followers to go on another pilgrimage to Santiago de Compostela. Uh, in a fit of spite, Pedro's last action before moving into France was to murder, uh, within the grounds of the cathedral, to, to murder the Archbishop of uh, um, Santiago de Compostela which kind of rivals Beckett's own death and oh. awfulness <laughs> yeah. so, uh, Pedro is a kind of nightmare candidate for the black Prince to have to support yeah you know the Black Prince subscribes to the crusading ideal um Pedro is hanging out with Muslim granada uh, uh, Pedro's he got a very bad reputation in terms of persecuting the church. He's suspected of all these gruesome crimes. Capital, he's been excommunicated twice. And, and I think the prince came to believe, certainly when he left France at, at the beginning of 1371, that he'd sinned grievously by supporting Pedro and that all this misfortune was the judgment of God.
0: And doesn't this, well, this follows through, doesn't it? Because um, I think you, you touched on it right at the beginning that the Black Prince dies before he can inherit his ultimate succession.
1: In, in a sense, in the Middle Ages, uh, and this is going to be partly speculation for me, but then the whole tradition is so much speculation that the context for interpreting this very, very beautiful um, gemstone, and, and when one sees it, um, you know, it. It's so striking. I mean, we'll get on to this, but it's set now in the Imperial State Crown, and it's just above the coronation diamonds, and just below um, Saint Edward's sapphire, and it really is absolutely stunning to look at. I think it's very important because it's a very entrancing stone, but um, that. Edward III dies, so the Black Prince dies in 1376. E- Edward III, his dad, dies in 1377. So that leaves a 10-year-old boy, the Black Prince's son, Richard II, to inherit. Now, the thing about Richard II was he had none of his father or his grandfather's military skill, but he shared his dad's love of bling. You know, his lo- mm. he loved... Uh, regalia precious stones and one fascinating source we have is his treasure roll for 1398 to 9 so this is right at the end of the reign of richard ii and there is the possibility at this stage that the prince's ruby because it's it would be referred to as a ballast ruby the spinel is set in one of no less than 11 crowns that Uh, Richard II owns, because his great crown, which was valued at £33,000, which which would be millions and millions of pounds now, is set with ballast rubers. And and why I talk about this reinvention, is if we imagine that for the poor black prince sort of wasting away with this terrible honest, bloody hell, I wish I'd never supported (laughs) Pedro (laughs) the cruel. And as for that damned, precious stone. Lock it up. I don't want to see it. <laughs> However, Richard II takes a totally different spin on this because as part of his, if you like, iconography, his cult of kingship, he his birth in Bordeaux in, in, in January 1367, he, he says, I, I, I was visited by three kings. Well, there were three kings around. They weren't particularly auspicious. Uh, James, king of Mallorca, he's actually, hasn't got Mallorca, it's it's been taken over by the the kingdom of Aragon, but he's pretending he's still. And and then we've got um, the king of Navarre, who was called Charles the Bad, and Charles the Bad is as bad as Pedro the Cruel. I mean, for for someone like the Black Prince to have to hang out with Charles the Bad and Pedro the Cruel, I mean, it's not good. But there were three kings. and. And when um, Richard came into adulthood, his iconography keeps playing on the idea of the three kings visiting the baby Richard as a sign, because he was fascinated by, if you like, the absolute right of kings. Uh, This kind of foreshadows the Stuarts. And this was, of course, the omen, you know, the the sign from God. Now, if you're being visited by three kings, and let's airbrush out their, their rather dodgy CVs. You need a gift, so yeah. I think, you know, for for Richard II, and we know that in his treasure roll, he's got stuff from Nakiera and, you know, obviously all sorts of stuff from his dad's and indeed his granddad. I I find it's quite plausible that for Richard, instead of the the ruby the, the spinel being um, uh, something to Whereas a pendant, he would recast it in a crown as part of the regalia. Now, we know later on that this has definitely happened, but I'm, I would suggest that this may have happened as early as the 1390s under Richard II. By the reign of Richard II, this very beautiful but perhaps ill fated stern has become, if you like, part of the royal collection.
0: Ah, Is it completely fair to say that it's ill-fated because we know that it appears in the hands of Henry V at the Battle of Agincourt, which you've also written a book about. Thank you for bringing that in. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's true, and it's a brilliant book. And doesn't Henry actually wear the stone whilst the battle's going on?
1: This is one story that I'd like to kick out to touch. Now we do know that Henry I, you know, leading from the front, not hiding, saying to his man, I, I bear the same risks as you, did have a circlet crown welded to his helmet. Uh, oh. but we need to think a bit about the logistics. This is a, a, a narrow band of gold that will be welded on to a helmet, so it's going to be thin, and we know that some rubers were set on that because the French chroniclers tell us that. But we need to think about the logistics. The, the, the Black Prince's ruby is five centimetres by five centimetres. That's more than two inches.
2: Yeah. Uh,
1: it's, it's largely uncut. Uh, and the idea of mounting this on uh, uh, a circlet crown welded to a helmet is pretty ludicrous. Uh, you'd have very small gems put on the circlet crown, but you just it wouldn't work. Um, and, you know, it, the, the interesting thing is that once you choose a setting for the Black Prince's ruby, it needs to be a proper crown. <laughs> so that's the first thing. And the second thing is, if this is such a, a wonderful kind of icon, that, you know, totemic, you know the valour of our ancestors, it'd be pretty unfortunate to have this huge, rather cumbersome uh, gem, which the first blow from a sword would shatter into a thousand pieces. So I, I really don't believe that the rubies that were on the circuit crown contained, if you like, the ballast ruby or spin-off.
0: So it's it's probably a myth then that, <laughs> that Henry wore the ruby at the battle. That's um, yes. a good story, but nothing more. <laughs> Now, we know that that from Henry V, and I think this is right, so tell me if I'm wrong. So I think then that the ruby, or the, the um, sorry, the spinel, passes from monarch to monarch until James I, and it's him who has it set into his state crown. Um, Yes,
1: it it does appear in uh, the first clear reference I think in an inventory is Henry VIII's inventory of 1521 uh, uh, it refers to a great um, ballast ruby set in the crown uh, there's an anecdotal reference to someone seeing it in Elizabeth the first reign and yes absolutely as you say James VI and first has it set uh, and people comment on it so it's very much becoming Incorporated into what will become the Crown Jewels?
0: I think it's it's then obviously as you mentioned earlier, it's now in the Imperial State Crown, which was made for the coronation of George VI in yes. 1937 um, from the Crown Jewellers Garrard and Co. Um, but what happens what happens to it during the Second World War when the UK was faced with the blitz?
1: This is the most extraordinary part of the story. Well, the whole story is pretty extraordinary. It is. But this one, if you excuse the terrible pun, really will take the takes the biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> because correspondence quite recently unearthed. So it was it's this is wonderfully amateur I mean it's so British. It's it's wonderfully amateurish and top secret. But in correspondence between George Sixth. And his mother, um, Queen Mary, he, he, he told of this extraordinary plan where in Windsor Castle, um, by one of the gates, this underground room was constructed, which could only be reached by a trap door. And the uh, crown jewels were stored down there. And then the finesse was that some of the most beautiful gems Including the Black Prince's ruby, were prized out of the crown, this is the Imperial State crown, and hidden in a biscuit tin.
0: (laughs) Oh my goodness.
1: Now, I mischievously imagine the Germans invading, occupying Windsor, finding this secret room, you know, duly packing up all the regalia. And then noticing the biscuit tin, and of course, Hitler had a tea room, the, the eagle nest, where, where you invite people. And, and some enterprising Germans say, Well, this would be a great trophy for <laughs> the <laughs> So off goes the biscuit tin, and you know, some like Mussolini invited to the eagle's nest, the biscuit tin op- opened up, and out pops the Black Prince's ruby. I mean, it, but fortunately, the Black Prince's ruby was spared that fate.
0: It Presumably, it, it stays there uh, for the entirety of the war, and then...
1: And, and then it goes back in, in, into the imperial state crown. And, and if people are fascinated by, I, I hope their appetite might might be whetted, but in, in the Tower of London, in the Jewel House, one can gaze at the, the magnificent crown and see um, the Black Prince's ruby, as it's called, in the middle with the Cullinan cool diamonds underneath mm. and St Edward's sapphire above. And it is the most wonderful setting. It is a very striking um, gemstone.
0: I had no idea how much history it has. And, you know, I think it's incredible the fact that it has been owned by the British royal family, You know, albeit with a quick break when, like you said, it was sold, but owned by them since 1367. I think that's incredible.
1: Yes, it is. And um, from the outset, it seems to have really left an impression on the the people who owned it.
0: I mean, it's been absolutely fascinating uh, to hear about that. And thank you so much, Mike, for giving us that incredible history of this really extraordinary gem. Are you able to tell us anything about what you're working on at the moment?
1: Well, yes, so I... I'm, I'm writing a book on the beginning of, of World War II right now, and so slightly before the biscuit tin. <laughs> <laughs> but, but perhaps the plan is already being hatched um, to to hide the Black Prince's Ruby in the biscuit tin, it's so magnificent. The book after that is on the end of the Hundred Years' War, so it's back to the Hundred Years' War and and those great battles that I was talking about. So there's a bit of both there in my plans.
0: Amazing. And for those listeners who would like to find out more about your work and connect with you, where can they find you?
1: I have a website, www.michaeljoneshistorian.com, and that's got more about me and my books and what I'm doing, although one hasn't been able to do a great deal this year, but hopefully that, that will change the next year and, and people can also get in touch through that website.
0: Michael's vast array of excellent books, including his biography of the Black Prince, are available to purchase from all good bookshops. Thanks so much for listening to today's episode and we will be posting pictures of the Black Prince's Ruby on our social media pages. If you enjoyed this podcast please press subscribe and leave us a rating and review and don't forget to tune in for the next episode of History Gems.